Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're continuing our series, Singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land. It's based on the book of Daniel, and today we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 4, verses 22 to 37, as we go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Many of us believe that power and humility cannot work hand in hand. And so we have bad attitudes towards politicians, wealthy business entrepreneurs, and major multinational corporate executives. Bank moguls are held up to disdain, and Supreme Court justices commonly interpret laws for their own advantage and care little for the long-term consequences as is experienced by the 99%. Isn't that how some of us feel? And of course, there are many reasons for this viewpoint. One doesn't have to look far to find another scandal, and these scandals aren't limited to political and financial spheres. Large and powerful religious ministries and leaders are also mistrusted, for we have all come to suspect that who they are in their private lives does not live up to their projected and well-crafted images. And so it goes. And we've all heard the phrase, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. Now, while it is true that power must be curbed, that the greater the power, the more thorough must be the checks placed on that power. And we do well to remember the words of James 2 verse 6. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? There are plenty of examples of absolute horror and suffering that has been afflicted on people by those who have both wealth and power. If you're one of those, know this. There is a God in heaven who sees, and you will not escape his justice. It awaits you. All power and wealth will not help you. As James has said in James 5 verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Indeed, the one who watches is both righteous and powerful, and he will remember. But there's another side to all of this. Romans 13 verse 4, speaking about those in political office, says of them, For he is God's servant for your good. And therefore, Romans 13 demands that we submit ourselves to those in political power over us. Furthermore, the Bible contains many condemnations about wealth and the wealthy, but it also contains the other side of the equation. I'm reading 1 Timothy 6.17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Did you notice that? The rich were not told to repent of being rich, but were commended to two things. First, they were commended towards humility, and second, they were commended to release all reliance on their riches, never hope in them. Here's the point. The world needs political leaders, and the world needs people who are able to exercise power. Without it, evil men and even anarchy would reduce the value of human life to nothing. The world also has need of people with considerable wealth, for if they use it well, they can help stimulate the economy and create jobs, and rightly applied can lift all of us. The same thing, money and power can be both a source of untold blessing and can result in unbridled evil. Well, you get the sense of what we're talking about. We're studying Daniel 4 and have learned that Nebuchadnezzar, king of the vast empire of Babylon, has had a troubling dream. 
In his dream, he has seen a vast tree that reached to the top of heaven being chopped down. And he has suspected that he understands that this might be from God, and he also suspects he knows what this might mean. He is about to be chopped down. Now, Daniel, the one man whom he trusts to both hear from God and tell him the truth, stands before him. And as we read our text today, we hear Daniel speaking to the king. I'm reading Daniel 4, 24 to 26. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the root of the tree, your kingdom will be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Now, in my last broadcast, I was quick to point out that this kind of straight talk to King Nebuchadnezzar, of all people, could get you killed very quickly. But Daniel has been given freedom to talk freely, and he is conveying the voice of God to the most powerful man on earth in those days. The vision chopped down the tree really corresponds well with what we think of when we say, take them down to size. See, what's at stake, as we know from what follows, is the king's mental health. The king would begin to exhibit strange behavior, eating grass like an ox. Now, the Aramaic word for grass might also include vegetables and other herbs, but the key is that instead of coming indoors, the king would prefer to live outside, and in his delusion, he would think of himself as an ox or a bull, depending upon which translation you read. Indeed, this insane behavior would carry on for seven years. And if we, the reader, are to take anything of this, it's very simple. Wealth and power simply does not protect anyone from disease and even mental illness, from inner delusion and misery, and eventually from death. But in the dream, Daniel has offered hope. The king will be like a tree that is chopped down, but the stump will remain, and therefore there is hope. And this hope does not come into play at all until the king recognizes that it is not he who rules, it is heaven that rules. And the lesson is obvious, and it goes out to all persons of wealth and power. Until you acknowledge that whatever power is given you comes directly from heaven and from God, and that he gives and he takes it from whomever he wishes for his purposes, until you deeply acknowledge that, there is so little hope for you. Now, Daniel's not done. Yes, he has fully and faithfully told the king what his dream means, but now he offers the king his counsel. I'm reading verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now, in that line, we learn what pride does when it is accompanied by power and wealth. Doing what is right speaks of doing good deeds. 
Showing mercy to the oppressed means to use power to lift the burdens and the injustices that people bear. Clearly, Nebuchadnezzar's power was doing the opposite. He was not doing what was right, and his policies were serving himself and adding to the miseries and heartaches and injustices that people faced. Some of us remember the words that had been supposedly put in the mouth of Marie Antoinette. She was to have been told that the peasants in France had no bread, and she said, let them eat cake without understanding their burdens. I'm not here to correct what she actually said and didn't, but the sentiment has been expressed. Some of us remember the late Leona Helmsley, known for her flamboyant personality and her flagrant disregard for the law. She was the one who said, we don't pay taxes, only the little people pay taxes. Or some of you might remember that it was said of Napoleon who justified his actions by saying, I am no ordinary man. There are plenty of people who would act just that way if they could. Their pride consumes them, and they would gladly satisfy their desires regardless of the cost. But power and wealth make this desire into a possibility. And that is most often the difference between the powerful and the rest of us. The powerful have the ability to act upon that which the rest of us would do if we could. Daniel's words of counsel are for every king and and every president and every prime minister and every human being who has been given power. Use your power to bless the poor and the oppressed and the needy. But to be truthful, all of us have a little power. And the word needs to be fully digested by every living human being. We are either lifting the needy or we are lifting ourselves. And I am afraid this is very, very bad news for every one of us. And the Most High is able to humiliate any human being. One word and we are launched into madness and into despair and into misery. We are, after all, not nearly as powerful as we might have imagined. That's the bad news and we cannot get to the good news until we digest exactly that. So how do we use what we've been given, or our influence, to bless others? Our faith is to be an expression of how we live. Well, we'll learn more as we continue with Dr. Neufeld in just a moment. What a great opportunity we have every day to direct people to walk closer to our Lord through the daily study of His Word. And as we do this faithfully through your support, lives are being profoundly impacted. Thank you for making such an incredible difference in what we're able to do, connecting people with the truth of the Bible. And please, as we begin a new year of ministry, continue to support us so that we might sustain and grow our Bible teaching program in Canada and beyond. So consider a gift today or even become a monthly partner. We'd love to hear from you by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visiting us online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. It would seem that King Nebuchadnezzar's disturbing dream and his counselor Daniel's advice to him had no lasting impact. And that's the problem with the flesh. It's so easy to be disturbed by a vision of judgment, but soon those old familiar behavioral patterns, the ones we have cultivated over a lifetime, simply take over. And that's exactly what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm reading Daniel 4, 28 to 30. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. 
At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And there it is. On that fateful day, I imagine the king walking from the location of the famous hanging gardens from which he had an impressive view of the massive, seemingly indestructible city of Babylon. Many have thought that this was, at this time in history, arguably the largest city on earth or even the largest city the earth had ever seen. Alexander the Great, over 200 years later, was so staggered by the city, he planned to make it the headquarters for his vast empire. What other place could so project power? How do we describe this city in a few words? It was shaped like a huge rectangle. It was surrounded by a very broad, deep moat. It had a massive and intricate system of double walls. On its gates, the Ishtar Gate was 40 feet tall. Indeed, there were eight gates into the city. In the midst of a city stood a huge seven-level ziggurat, 288 feet into the air. There were 53 temples in the city and at least three palaces. The different kinds of exotic plants were there from all over the world. They had figured out how to raise water to the high terraces. I mean, the place was stunning. And there on that fateful day stood Nebuchadnezzar drinking it all in. And like Satan of old, his heart swelled as he meditated deeply on his power and his splendor and his genius and his greatness. Now, at this point, I want to tell you a true story. I was leading a home Bible study group one evening, and one of the men wanted to stay behind. He he was an atheist, and his wife had recently come to faith in Christ. He was visibly angry by what we had talked about that evening, and after everyone else was gone, he and I talked. Sometimes he became quite animated. We talked deeply into the night. He said, I work, and I'm going to delete his expletives here for the sake of decorum, but, but you might imagine it. I work very hard for everything I got in this life, he said. Not one person helped me. I did it on my own. So don't you tell me to be thankful to God for that, which I did and not God. In turn, I told him that he didn't create the kind of economy that made his prosperity a possibility. Try pulling that off in Bangladesh, I said. Furthermore, you didn't create your own health or energy or even the mental brilliance that you have to succeed. Each one of these was a gift from heaven, and you did nothing either for it, nor have you even for a moment done your duty by giving thanks to the one who gave it to you. He responded by telling me that there was no God to help him when things got tough. Well, you get the idea. That that conversation went on. But for Nebuchadnezzar, no such conversation, for no man dared to contradict the king. And that, my friends, is the blindness that those of wealth and power have. No one tells them the truth, that is, except God. Now let's continue to read verses 31 to 33. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew from heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. 
And that is God's answer to the proud statement that I am a self-made man or a self-made woman. For everyone who takes credit for any accomplishment, one day God will remove his grace that has allowed your accomplishments to even be possible. And self-assured Nebuchadnezzar descends into madness. I can only imagine that at first the servants of the king were shocked, but after a while they, they shook their heads at the crazy king. From regal splendor to a crazy old man who wouldn't come indoors and thought he was an ox. How quickly we go from pride to utter humiliation. It was often been wondered exactly how this came to be, that Nebuchadnezzar actually wrote this account. He does address this letter to the members of his kingdom, but in truth, I doubt that the news of such madness, while it was actually going on for for those horrible seven years, would not have leaked out beyond the royal palace to the streets of Babylon and beyond. I mean, during his madness, this would have been the secret of the royal palace. Now to verses 34 to 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Nebuchadnezzar, by his own testimony, here says that his first act was to lift his eyes to heaven and then his reason returned to him. It must be that even in his madness, there was some gesture of humility, perhaps some act of submission and surrender to God. And it would seem by reading this account that reason returned to him rather quickly. And then the rest of the chapter is is taken up in stating what the king concluded about his experience, everything from the dream to its interpretation, to his pride, and then to his descent into madness. It would seem that the king came to three rather startling conclusions. First, he concluded that God has dominion, or what we today call the sovereignty of God. God rules, and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't. His kingdom, his accomplishments existed because God had willed that they should. He could have worked as hard as he wanted without a single result if God had not willed it. Heaven rules, that's an absolute statement. Indeed, we might argue here that anyone who takes credit for anything without acknowledging that heaven rules is already in a state of madness. Second, heaven doesn't just rule in our lifetime. The Most High God enjoys an eternal dominion. His kingdom is unassailable. It exists because there is a God who exists. To ignore God is already madness. Third, when Nebuchadnezzar says that all the earth's inhabitants are counted as nothing, he doesn't mean that God doesn't care about the welfare of people. He means that all the united strength of the world's mightiest men and women arrayed together to rebel against God is accounted as nothing. Human strength and human will cannot overthrow God's purposes. He does as he wills. What a humbling revelation. Mad Nebuchadnezzar imagined that the imperial might of Babylon could impose its own will on history when, in fact, Nebuchadnezzar could only do what God determined that he should. Can you, my friend, learn this lesson also? Are you as insane as Nebuchadnezzar? Please acknowledge that the Most High God rules. 
Now to conclude, let's allow Nebuchadnezzar to conclude for us. He says, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. What an amazing conclusion to come to by the most powerful man in the face of the earth. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I'm going to ask you today that if today your pride has kept you from seeing the God who is, from humbling yourself and surrendering your life into the hands of Christ, might I ask you today to allow your fierce pride to be broken and to acknowledge that God is God and that the Son of God's sacrifice on the cross is the only hope that you have, both now and in eternity. Would you pray with me and would you ask God to forgive your sins? And would you say to the Lord, I ask Christ to come into my life. O Lord God, humble me and may I walk with you. Today, I surrender my life into your hands and acknowledge that you are God and that I'm not. See, if that's your prayer for the first time, know this, that God stands near to those who humble themselves and will accept you into his kingdom. John, this was an insightful message. One of the things I noticed about, about chapter 4 was Nebuchadnezzar came back, he, he acknowledged his pride. So he went through this season and then he acknowledged what happened and then he came back and acknowledged God. Is that what we have to do? Do we have to acknowledge what's going on in our life before we can move on? You know, the question sometimes is, how many, how many sins do I need to repent of? And I think we need to repent of all known sins in our lives. And, uh, you know, I mean, there are some things that are hidden from our sight, but, but because pride is such a formidable thing for every single human being, indeed, it is the sin of Adam and Eve that led them out of the garden and towards the fall. We need to see pride in our own lives, and we need to counter it. And I think the way that we encounter it, first of all, is that we need to tell God that we are guilty of this thing and that uh, we stand condemned in his presence. We need to own our own pride and we need to ask God to give us humility to see that he alone is worthy of glory and none is due to us. So yes, I think we acknowledge it. Great message. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. So much is happening, and we want to thank those who partnered with us to make this very special part of our ministry possible. I'm talking about our partnership with Back to the Bible India. In the weeks ahead, Dr. Newfeld's Bible teaching will reach millions on radio in English, Hindi, and Telugu. And in the new year, Dr. Newfeld himself will be conducting a pastor's conference where he'll be teaching the discipline of expositional preaching. The budget for this ministry in India is approximately $80,000, and this is an ongoing annual cost as we work together to bring the truth of God's Word to life in India. So would you join us in this great ministry venture? Give for the first time, give to continue to support this ongoing ministry, or even become a monthly partner with a primary focus on ministry in India. Call us today to offer your support or to get more information 
at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.